Rumpole and the Reign of Terror by John Mortimer. Part 2. The past catches up with us all. Really? Rumpole is extraordinary. Right in the middle of our holiday, he said he had to pack up straight away and go back to Chambers. I asked him why, because he hasn't been exactly overloaded with work lately, and he said he couldn't stay because Brighton had made him laugh too much. Sometimes I feel afraid that Rumpole, due, I'm sure, to too much claret and smoking small cigars, is losing his marbles. Anyway, I didn't mind coming home. The Antrims were very nice and all that, but useless at bridge. I can get back to a game with a really distinguished legal figure, who, I have to admit, has taken a distinct shine to me. I refer, of course, to Leonard Bullingham. My life is becoming... extremely... interesting... Back in Froxbury Mansions, after some searching, I found a photograph which I had kept for some reason, perhaps as a record of the fervent political years in the late sixties. I took it to my desk, switched on a light, and examined it carefully. The Scarlet Band. And then, I have to admit, I laughed again. It was a photograph taken for some underground publication who never used it, but which had, for some reason, been included in my brief at the time. It was captioned, The Scarlet Band, the group waging war against the enemies of Vietnam. I could recognize the three youths that I'd mitigated for when they pleaded guilty, including the young and intense Ian Antrim, but with them was a fourth, another Gloucester undergraduate, the one who didn't join in the attack on the American reading room, he who thought it a better career move to call the police. Of course, he was younger then, but the square body and naturally pugnacious features were unmistakable. It was the young Frederick Sugden. Now I needed another conversation with the Home Secretary. But how was it to be arranged? As I was pondering this, Claude Erskine Brown, the opera-loving, hopeless QC of our chambers, came into my room. I hear you went to Brighton, Rumpole. How was that? Interesting. Extremely interesting. And you? A client's villa in Saint-Tropez. Oh, sounds fun. No, no, not really. The Home Secretary was a fellow guest. Mm. My wife found Fred Sugden adorable. Did you find him adorable when you met him, Rumpole? Not in the very least. No. I don't know why Philly found him so attractive. Your wife's not about to bunk with this Sugden, is she? Oh, no, not that. But she's always having dinner with him, in the Myrtle and such like places. She went to watch him in a debate in Parliament. Mm. I don't think he's at all attractive, but he's got power, you see. We haven't got power, I suppose, have we, Rumpel? I don't know. I might have a bit of it. Does Sugden come to your house occasionally? Well, he's coming to our summer party. Of course, Philly asked him. She'll flatter him, and he'll ignore me entirely. Your wife, Phyllida, in spite of her elevation to the bench, is a very attractive woman. Yes, I know that. You, why don't you invite me to your summer party? Well, yes. 
Yes, of course. Rumpole, what do you have in mind? I might be able to reduce the Sugden power just a little. Anyway, Hilda enjoys a party. Reduce his power? How on earth can you do that? I'm not at liberty to tell you how. Not just for the moment, but uh, invite us and let's see what I can do. The Erskine Brown House in Islington has a small garden which was decorated with coloured lights hanging from the trees. House and garden were filled near to overflowing by judges, barristers and occasional lords of appeal. I saw Phyllida leave her guests in the garden and go to greet the Lord Chancellor. And I spotted Sugden. I went over to join him. Good evening, Rumpole. I see you've kept yourself off the television lately. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you better not sit there. I think our hostess will be back in a minute I or two. I know she will. That's why we haven't got much time to talk about something rather important. Mm, what might that be? The Scarlet Band. Oh, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I rather think you do. I happen to have a photograph of you in your student days. Taken for an underground magazine. It shows you clearly as a member of the Scarlet Band. Keep your voice down. You remember I appeared for the rest of the band when you grasped on them. Quiet, for God's sake. You were only amateur terrorists, weren't you? You only trashed a few American and South African properties. <sighs> I know you talked about bombs, big bomb talk, and you had the bomber's handbook. Oh, now, just a minute. That was never... Yeah, I'm sure you didn't have much of a talent for being a terrorist, though. You were probably better off as a police informer. Hmm? Rumpole... What are you going to do with that photograph? We'll sell it to the papers, of course. I thought I'd start with the Sunday Fortress. They'd probably come up with a good headline. Home Secretary was Youthful Terrorist. Something along those lines. <laughs> what do you want? Something quite simple. A fair trial in front of a jury for Dr Mahmoud Khan, at present under house arrest. You'll remember the name, won't you? Mahmoud Khan, late of Belmarsh Prison. Just a fair trial, that's all he wants. This is blackmail. Exactly. We've all got criminal tendencies, haven't we? I'll give you three weeks. If nothing's happened by then, well, <laughs> read the fortress. Oh, now our hostess is coming back to you. What a successful party this is. <laughs> three weeks later... We were in the living room of the Khan's highly desirable residence on the better side of Kilburn. Tiffany had been both excited and terrified by the prospect of a trial. Dr. Khan was his usual calm self. You have worked a miracle for me, Mr. Rumpole. I am to have a fair trial. A miracle? No. Just part of my normal service. Now, is there anything you haven't told me? Your wife mentioned something about your having been followed... Being followed? Nothing more to say about that. But once, perhaps in error, I got directed to a strange home. Tell me. Uh, probably only a silly mistake. I got a text message from Mrs. Singh. She'd gone through quite a serious cancer operation, and I looked after her on her regular visits to the hospital. The message said she wanted to meet me urgently at her home at 12.30 the next day. It was an address in Wilsdon. When was this? Earlier this year, uh, about January, I think it was. So what happened when you got to the house? It was clearly the wrong address. I rang the bell and a Pakistani man answered it. Uh, there were two other men in the hall. They were very rude, Mr. Rumpole, very ill-mannered. They wanted to know who I was, who sent me. I tried to explain, but I don't think they believed me. 
In the end, they pushed me out of the door, warned me never to come to the place again. It was a bit odd. I should say so. Did you speak to Mrs. Singh after that? Naturally. She said she had never texted me. She wouldn't have known how to do such a thing. I suppose it was all a bit of a joke, really. Not a particularly funny one. What was the address? Uh, Highfield Road. I forget the number. Did you ever go back there? Just once, out of curiosity. The place was boarded up with a for sale notice. It was all a ridiculous mistake. Mm. Once again, Dr. Khan was playing the typical mild-mannered stoic. Was it all a disguise? And a particularly effective one? I couldn't make up my mind. In any event, I had other things to think about. Will Timson, who had been so much enamoured of Tiffany, was in trouble with the law. Again. Erskine Brown, to whom he'd been sent when the Timpsons vowed to desert Rumpole, wanted him to plead guilty. So Will Timpson came back to me. We met in a familiar environment, the interview room in Brixton Prison. It started when I got friendly with Jim Malloy. That's unusual. I thought the Timpsons and the Malloys hated each other. Well, so they do, but Jim and I got on all right. He was interested in the same things. What sort of things? Fast cars, girls, all of that, you know. And burgling, I thought, but did not say. Jim wanted us to do a corner shop just off Edgware Road. Seven to nine, Heckling Street? Yeah, that's the one. Hmm. Well, I went to look at it. Didn't seem to have much to offer. It was covered with CCTV cameras, so I said it weren't on. That was very smart of you. Well, I'm cautious, me. Jim come round and put a lot of the stuff he'd stolen in my garage. Uh, are you going to say that you didn't know it was stolen property? Of course I didn't know it was stolen. It'd be hard to get a jury to believe you. Yeah, but you'll, you'll do your best for me, won't you, Mr Rumpole? Yes, of course, I'll do my best. It was a Pakistani run, that shop. Well, what's that got to do with it? I'm thinking about that Pakistani doctor you're defending. The one that took Tiffany away from me. He's guilty as hell, isn't he? Not yet. He's innocent until somebody proves otherwise. <sighs> I hope they lock him up in that Belmarsh and throw away the key. I thought of Dr. Khan, a prisoner in his own home. He had some good friends, perhaps, but clearly at least one enemy. At our last bridge club, Leonard Bullingham asked me to go with him to the flicks, his expression. There was a particular film he wanted to see. So I told Rumpole I was going to the cinema. I don't say the flicks, with an old school friend. The film in question was a story about a couple who lived with their child and their dog. When the child was kidnapped, the dog went off to save her. Of course, it all came right in the end. As the lights went up, I saw Leonard's eyes were filled with tears. <laughs> Profoundly moving, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Now, yes. I thought you'd like our local Indian restaurant. They do an excellent bang-bang chicken. Oh, lovely. Just between you and me, Hilda, I've had a piece of extremely good news. I'm glad to hear it. Now, I've had the news, but of course I'm not allowed to tell anyone until it's been published officially. But I think that our friendship is such, Hilda, that we've learned to trust each other. <laughs> I suppose so. I think I shall tell you, oh, Hilda. Please don't. Why ever not? Too much responsibility. 
At breakfast, Rumpole opened a page of the Times and began to laugh. <laughs> What's so funny? They've gone and made the mad bull a high court judge. Oh, really? Kicked him out in scarlet. The world's gone mad. I'm sure Leonard Bullingham will make an excellent high court judge. He'll be madder than ever. Oh, by the way, I meant to ask you, how did you and that old school friend of yours enjoy the film? Very much. In fact, we were moved to tears. Bonnie Bernard arrived with further evidence against Dr. Khan from the prosecution. This consisted of a bundle of letters found in the doctor's desk drawer in the visitor's house at Oakwood. I read the translations. If these documents were to be believed, the quiet doctor, Tiffany's beloved husband and the father of her children, was a brother in the holy jihad who wished to spill as much blood as possible before he had to appear before his god. Not only will famous buildings be targeted, but also public places wherever people congregate, is what it said. For at least five minutes, even my faith in Magna Carta wavered. Was the pugnacious Sagdan in fact right? But then I lit a small cigar, and came to my senses. I had won a fair trial. We could at least call on the prosecution to prove the case. So we'll have to make another visit to the desirable residence in Kilbury. Not much point in that. Hmm? Dr. Khan's no longer there. Well, they set him free. Hardly. He broke the conditions of his house arrest. He made a telephone call, a personal call to someone outside. Hmm. So the doctor's in the nick. Which nick exactly? Brixton. In the taxi on the way to Brixton, Bonnie Bernard told me he'd come up with some strange information. Something rather odd about the Will Timpson case. We've got a list of all the stuff burgled from the corner shop. Well, the one in Hegling Street. That's it. Well, apparently, among all that stuff, there's a page of notes written in Urdu. The prosecution told me what they were all about. What? Allegations against our Dr Khan. What sort of allegation? That he was plotting to blow up buildings in London, same as the letters we've got. All from that corner shop? Seems so. Mm. We arrived at the prison, and I had no time to give the matter further thought. But I filed it away in my mind for further consideration. I tell you, Mr. Rumpole, I know nothing of these letters saying I wanted innocent blood shed. Why should I say that? It seems the letters were found in a drawer of your desk in the visitor's centre. Do you keep that drawer locked? Certainly. Where's the key? On my keyring. When did you last use the drawer? Before January. I took my wife and children to Paris for a few days after Christmas. Soon after I got back, I was arrested. Mm -hmm. A certain gentleman called Will Timson doesn't like you very much, does he? He was once in love with my wife, Tiffany. He has rung her, advising her to leave me. No, he doesn't like me. He was found in possession of some notes about the accusations made against you. And your telephone number. He says they were part of a lot of stuff stolen from a corner shop just off the Edgware Road. Corner shop? Which corner shop? 7 to 9 Heckling Street, is that right, Bernard? Uh, quite right, yes. Heckling Street? My father's favourite shop out of all of them. Your father? When did he sell it? Oh, long, long ago, when things began to go wrong in all the shops. It broke his heart to sell them. 
particularly Heckling Street. Ah, sad story then about your father. Oh, he survived. He had good friends like Mr. Jubal. He was always a friend to father, and through him we met his daughter, Benazir. Benazir? Now Benazir Whiteside, you know her? I've heard of her from your wife. You know, the Khans and the Jubals were long-time enemies in Pakistan. They fell out about a piece of land or something, but in England we were all great friends. So can you think of any reason for notes about your alleged terrorist activities being in the Heckling Street shop? No, Mr. Rumpo. Like everything else in my case, completely inexplicable. As we left the prison, Bonnie Barnard asked the question I wasn't yet prepared to answer. What does all the stuff about Heckling Street have to do with this case? Who knows? But it might just be worthwhile finding out. I was alone in the mansion flat one lunchtime when the telephone rang. Hello, this is Mr Justice Bullingham's clerk, madam. His lordship wishes to know, is Mr Rumpole there? No, Mr Rumpole's not here. Then I heard a voice, which I took to be Leonard's. Ask her if Rumpole's coming back for lunch. Uh, will Mr Rumpole be home for lunch at all? No, he will not. He's been at Brixton Prison. He'll probably call in at some ghastly pub on the way back to Chambers. The lady said he's probably out at some ghastly pub. Well, give me the phone, Barnes. Are you there, Hilda? Yes, and I've been here all along. I just had to make sure that Rumpole wasn't there with you and that we're alone. By the way, what did Rumpole say when he heard of my appointment? I'm afraid he laughed. Well, well Rumpole must have the most extraordinary sense of humour. I'm afraid he has. Hilda, we must face up to the fact that we mustn't meet for a considerable time. Even at the bridge club? I shall have to avoid the bridge club now for the next, oh, well, it may be months. It'll be very hard for me to do so, but it's a professional necessity. It's a matter of duty. You mean a red judge isn't allowed to play bridge? No, no, it's not that. It's just that I've been selected to try a case Rumpole's in, Regina versus Khan. I think they wanted someone tough who wouldn't stand for any nonsense. <laughs> It'd be quite wrong for me to be seen consorting with his wife. Well, really? Up to and during the trial. Consorting? Is that what we've been doing? After the verdict, of course, we can do as we like. I look forward immensely to dining with you at my club again. Oh, oh, what a wonderfully happy time we had there, didn't we? Well, yes. <clears throat> Your Honour. All right, Barnes. I'll be with him in a moment. That's the master of the robes. <laughs> We're both going across to the inn for lunch. But, Leonard... I'll be thinking of you, Hilda. I didn't know what to think. I went back to the kitchen and did something I rarely do... I poured myself a large glassful of what Rumpole calls his Chateau Thames Embankment. I thought it tasted rather nice. So I gave myself another glass as I tidied up the kitchen. My next call was to the helpful Barrington Whiteside, who showed me Dr Khan's room in the visitor's centre. The police didn't come and ask you if they could search Dr. Khan's desk. Perhaps when he was away on his holiday, around Christmas last year. Nobody came. Nobody with anything so old-fashioned as a search warrant? No one at all. I've talked to the other members of staff. They can't remember anyone asking to go through Mahmoud's desk and papers. Of course, no one would have been allowed to search unless they had a warrant. Mm. 
Perhaps the special branch was doing a little unauthorised breaking and entering. They rather enjoyed that. This is where the special branch say they found the letters. I think Bernard sent you a copy of the translations. Have you read them? Disgusting. But I can't believe Mahmoud was involved in any of that. They might have sent him the letters, I suppose. What for? What for? To, to trap him, perhaps? Mm. To make him join them? What does Mahmoud say about the letters? He says he's never seen them before in his life. They came as a complete surprise to him. That's what he says. Do you still believe he's innocent? Well, of course I do. Don't you? I'm not sure. But I'm prepared to act on that assumption. Well, that's terrible for Mahmoud. Terrible if his own barrister doesn't believe he's innocent. My beliefs, one way or the other, are completely irrelevant. I shall defend him to the best of my ability. Can I still rely on you as a character witness again? Of course you can. The question is, can we trust you? In the weeks that followed, Regina versus Malloy and Timson came in for trial in Court 6 at the Old Bailey. I managed to get Will off the burgling charge, and on the receiving charge, a lenient judge gave him a suspended sentence. <laughs> suspended sentence? I don't reckon anyone in the family's had one of them before. Will Timson left me to celebrate his good luck, but I couldn't forget his hatred of Dr. Kahn and the letters and Khan's telephone number and address, which had been found in his possession. I hadn't finished with the shop in Hickling Street yet. I had already told Bonnie Bernard to find out all he could about the shop and its owners, and tonight I was to meet him at six o'clock in Pomeroy's wine bar. Bonnie Bernard had been successful in his sleuthing, and he made his report. The Heckling Street shop is part of a chain of corner shops, owned by Baltistan British Services Limited. You got a list of all the directors of the company? Yes, yes, it's back at the office. The company was founded about 15 years ago to take over a number of small shops and retail premises. Mm -hmm. I went to the shop in Heckling Street and I saw the manager, Mr Ali Raza. Mm -hmm. I told him I was a solicitor and perhaps he thought I was linked with the police. <laughs> he became very helpful, Rumpel. <laughs> Did he indeed? <laughs> when he'd finished his report, I asked Bonnie Bernard to serve a witness summons on Mr. Raza. For the first time in this case, I was looking forward to something with eager anticipation. So, we meet again. Yes, we meet at Philippi. Philip who? Philippi. I take it that Shakespeare is not one of New Labour's favourite authors. It's the last battle in Julius Caesar. <laughs> really? Who won? I didn't tell him it was the government, in the shape of Mark Antony. I took my seat in court, and, glancing up at the public gallery, I saw she who must be obeyed. She was soon to witness the contest between myself and Judge Leonard Bullingham. As I glanced up, she raised her hand, and I saluted her quickly, remembering the gladiators in ancient Rome who felt that they were about to die. No? Tiffany was sitting behind me wiping away tears with a crumpled handkerchief, but beautiful as ever. With her was a neatly dressed, grey-haired man she introduced as her dad, Ray Timpson. You'll do your best for the doctor, I'm sure. Oh, yes, I'll do my best. I did not tell him that I feared my best might not be good enough. 
Peter Plasto opened his case and read the jury the letters which quite obviously angered and disgusted them. It was midday before I got the chance of cross-examining the special branch superintendent in charge of the case. You found the letters in my client's desk in the visitor center. They were found there, yes. Did you ask the hospital authorities for permission to search the office? No. Why not? No doubt the officer did not want to give away the search. If Khan had heard of it, he might have removed the letters. Exactly so, my lord. Oh, so you're delighted to accept his lordship's answer to my question. But it's not his lordship who is giving evidence, and I can't cross-examine the learned judge, so please will you answer the questions in the future? Members of the jury, Mr. Rumpole likes to make jokes. I would advise you to ignore them for the moment. Yes, Mr. Rumpole. After you discovered these letters, you had my client followed. We did. And all that dedicated following produced no results, led to nothing. On one occasion it did. He went into a house which had been the house of a known terrorist. Was that a house in Willesden? Yes, it was. My client's case is that he got a message from a patient asking him to meet her at that house in Willesden. When he got there, he found some people whom he didn't know, and he left immediately. I know nothing about that. But if it's true, maybe he'd been led to that house, apparently a house of terrorists, so that he would look guilty to whoever was following him. Is that the explanation you're seriously putting to the jury, Mr. Rumpole? Yes, my lord. And I shall ask the jury to consider it seriously. <clears throat> now, Superintendent, we must ask you this. Who gave you the information which led to the search my of lord. Dr. Khan's desk and the following of him? My lord, the police can't be forced to reveal their sources in terrorist cases. It would be far too dangerous. Now, that has to be right, doesn't it, Mr. Rumpole? I'm simply ruling that the sources must be protected. If the rest of the case is to be shrouded in mystery, can we at least agree that the notes in Urdu and my client's address were found in a shop in Hegling Street? I can't see the relevance of that, but I'm prepared to admit it. Oh, much obliged. <laughs> Hilda and I had lunch together. Sausages and mash in the old Bailey canteen. I think Leonard Bullingham was being a bit hard on you, Rumpole. I don't see why you shouldn't know who gave the police the information, even if it's not going to help you at all. Thanks very much, Hilda. I know how sensitive Leonard is to public opinion. On the other hand, it's no use you trying to be rude to Leonard. No, you're probably right. It's just that I simply can't resist it. Such a fascinating situation. Going to make a very interesting chapter in my memoirs. Hilda, you're not writing your memoirs. Of course. What else would I be doing in the box room with a word processor? But they're not... not for publication. Who can tell? My life is becoming extremely interesting. <sighs> Lunch was over, and so was the prosecution evidence. I told the bull that my character witness was needed back at the hospital, so could I possibly call him first? So Barrington Whiteside stepped into the witness box. Mr. Whiteside, you have worked with Dr. Khan for, I think it's, 15 years? 16 and a half. And you also know him as a friend? I am acquainted with him and his wife, yes. Acquainted? You saw a good deal of each other, you and your wife Benazir, and him and his wife, Tiffany? 
we saw a little less of each other lately. I looked round the court. On the benches behind me, Tiffany was puzzled and shaking her head. Benazir, dazzling in a bright sari, gave her husband an encouraging smile. I turned back to the witness box. Why was that? Dr. Khan seemed changed. He was silent. I thought he was troubled. It was as though he had something on his mind. He didn't seem to want a social life. Really? Mr. Whiteside, you know the charges that have been made against your friend, Dr. Khan. He is accused of taking part in and encouraging terrorist activities. It's also alleged that he knew of terrorist plans and failed to inform the police. With your knowledge of his character, what is your view of the possibility of any of these charges being true? I've said he seemed very remote, withdrawn. I'd say he was worried. Speak up, Mr. Whiteside. I did feel that he might be engaged in something illegal. I know he'd been involved in politics of some sort in Pakistan. Looking back on it, I suppose I'd have to admit the charge might be true. Of course, I have no evidence. No, you haven't, have you, Mr. Whiteside? I could not contain my excitement. The witness had walked straight into the trap I'd set for him. Mr. Whiteside. Now I got the usher to hand him a piece of paper. Is that the proof of evidence you signed for my solicitor before the hearing of Dr. Khan's case in front of the Special Immigration Appeals Committee? I think so. Well, just read out what you said about Dr. Khan's character then. Just read it out, please, so we can all hear you. In my opinion, and I know him extremely well, Dr. Khan is incapable of any illegal act, and in particular, any act of terrorism. At which I surprised Barry, and possibly the jury, by asking Mr. Justice Leonard Bullingham to rule that I could treat the witness as hostile. The law being that you can't call a witness and cross-examine him unless he has been found to be hostile. The witness mustn't just be hostile to Mr. Rumpole's client. He must be proved to be hostile to the truth. The completely contradictory statements clearly prove that this witness is hostile. I have to say that if your lordship were to refuse my submission, I would have to proceed at once to the Court of Appeal. In the interests of a fair trial for Dr. Khan, I feel sure that both the appeal judges and public opinion would be on my side. His lordship took time for thought. No doubt a newly appointed judge wouldn't wish to be rubbished by the Court of Appeal in one of his first cases, but it might have been public opinion that weighed more with him. To check this, he glanced up to the gallery. I'm not sure what the slight frown that she who must donated to him was meant to say, but happily he interpreted it in my favour. Um, I find that this witness has been hostile to the truth. You may cross-examine him, Mr. Rumpole. Thank you, my love. Mr. Whiteside, you know that when Dr. Khan's father came here from Pakistan, he acquired about ten corner shops in London. He told me that, yes. And he also acquired a very desirable residence on the better side of Kilburn. I think you rather admire that house, don't you? Yes, we do. I know my wife and I feel it's a perfect family house. Mm. For you? 
Possibly for us, but of course it belongs to Dr. Carr. Who inherited it from his father? Yes. And you would have hoped it might be yours. If Dr. Khan didn't own it, yes. I suppose it's the sort of place we'd have liked, but of course it wasn't ours. And Dr. Khan and his wife, Tiffany, were your friends? Yes. Good friends? Perfectly good friends. Well, we'll see about that. You know that Dr. Khan's father's shops began to fail. There were fires, thefts, all sorts of misfortunes, so in the end he had to sell the shops. I heard something about that. Yes, I should rather think you did. The shops eventually became the property of a company called Baltistan British Services Limited. And the chairman of the Baltistan Company was, I'm sure you can tell us here, Mr. Whiteside, the chairman was Mr. Ahmed Jubal. And who was he? My late father-in-law. Quite right. And since his death, a director of Baltistan and a major shareholder is none other than your wife, Benazir. Where's all this leading? I, I, I simply wonder where all this talk of companies and corner shops is leading. Then wander on till truth make all things plain. Mr. Rumpole, that's no answer to Mr. Plasto's question. No, perhaps not, my lord. It's a small drop of Shakespeare a Midsummer Night's Dream, which I thought the court might enjoy. If your lordship will allow me to ask these next few questions, I can show exactly where this is leading. Very well, Mr. Rumpole, but keep it short. We haven't got all the time in the world, you know. I promise your lordship I won't take up all the time in the world. <laughs> Mr. Whiteside, one of the shops your wife's company runs is at numbers 7 to 9 Heckling Street, isn't it? It might be. And you know that shop in Heckling Street was burgled, don't you? You should know that, Mr. Rumpole. Didn't you defend one of the burglars? <laughs> there was laughter from Plasto at this, in which the jury joined. As I turned to look at him, I caught Benazir Whiteside staring at me with a look of fury. He's rather got you there, hasn't he, Mr. Rumpo? I was in the case, my lord. That's why I happen to know so much about it. May I remind the jury of an admission made by the prosecution in their case? Oh, very well, if you're coming to the point. This is the point. <laughs> Members of the jury, the prosecution admits that documents stolen from the office of the shop in Heckling Street included a paper with Dr. Khan's name on it and notes in the Urdu language referring to various acts of terrorism and suggestions of terrorist activities. I don't know anything about that. Don't you? It was your wife's shop. She was a good friend to Dr. Khan, just as her father was a good friend to his father. Was he such a good friend, I wonder? Didn't he sabotage the shops and secretly take over the business? I can only repeat, I don't know anything about that. And wasn't there something else? A long-term feud between the two families in Pakistan. A hatred of the Khans behind all that pretense of friendship. I danced up at the public gallery. Hilda was leaning forward, apparently listening eagerly to my questions and Barry's answers. I had never received so much attention from her. Mr. Rumpole, just where is all this leading to? Directly to the question of my client's guilt or innocence, if your lordship will just be patient. In my submission, your lordship has shown exemplary patience. But isn't it now time Mr. Rumpole put his case, whatever that may turn out to it's be? It's in the public interest that I establish the facts leading up to an inevitable conclusion, my lord. These are all matters which the public has a right to know. Very well, Mr. Rumpole. 
But the court relies on you to keep it as short as possible. I will be brief. Mr. Whiteside, your wife was determined to carry on the family business. Her father had scooped up all the shops, but there was still one great asset the Khan family had left. And you wanted it desperately, didn't you? Wanted what, exactly? I'm not at all sure what you're talking about. That desirable residence. That fine house on the better side of Kilburn. Ruined Dr. Khan, and he'd have to sell it to you and your wife at a knockdown price. The Jubal family would have got it all. How do you think we plan to get the house? Mr. Whiteside, it is not for you to question counsel. By forging letters about terrorism and leaving them in his desk when he was away on holiday. <laughs> Mr. Rumpole, are you suggesting that this gentleman and his wife rang up the police and gave them misinformation about your client? Not directly, my lord. The police informant was Mr. Ali Raza, manager of the Hickling Street shop. That's why Dr. Khan's name and notes about alleged terrorist activities were found there. He was the so-called source. And if Special Branch want to deny this, no doubt my learned friend will have an opportunity of recalling the superintendent. I turn my attention to Barrington Whiteside again. Mr. Whiteside, things were all right for you when my client was in Belmarsh, weren't they? You could pretend to be on his side and hope he'd be stuck there forever. But then he was given house arrest and planted back in the property you wanted. Was that a bit of a blow for you? I don't know what you're talking about. But you do know Mr. Ali Raza, who rang the special branch with the lies that you and your wife told? Who sent the text message which asked Dr. Khan to visit a terrorist house? And who finally told them to search Dr. Khan's desk, where you had hidden the forged letters? I still don't know what you're talking about. Then can my next witness, Mr. Ali Raza, be brought into court for the purpose of identification? Call the next witness. Call Mr. Ali Raza. He came in. The man who had thought that Bonnie Bernard was a police officer, and so had told him the whole story. Mr. Raza stood gazing up at the woman who was his employer... Benazir, and his appearance had an immediate effect on Barrington Whiteside. It was her. Her all the time. Her idea. And he pointed across the court at his wife, Benazir. She wanted the house. She wrote the letters. Do you think I could have written them? They were written in Urdu. She got Raza to contact the police. It's all her doing. Every bit of it. All this stupid business. She wanted it to happen. And I'm not Paying for it! At this, he sat on the seat in the witness box and seemed to sob. There was an embarrassed silence in court, so that you could hear the clock by Hilda's seat ticking. And then the silence was broken by Peter Plasto, who moved to ask for a short adjournment so that the prosecution could consider its position. Regina versus Khan was, in fact, over and the Queen had almost finished her business with the long-suffering doctor. After he'd been released, he came to say goodbye to me. Barry and Benazir? I can't understand it. I thought we were best friends. Yes. Very disappointing. I tell you quite honestly, Mr. Rumpel, I shall miss their company. While Rumpel was saying goodbye to his client, I was invited to take a dish of tea in his lordship's room. We were alone together over the tea. Dear Hilda. And Leonard looked at me and said an extraordinary thing. When we're married, Hilda, I can't wait to take you out dancing. Uh, 
Did you say dancing? Yeah, my ex-wife and I had such fun at tea dances in the Waldorf Hotel and all sorts of places. Can you tango, Hilda? No, I, I certainly can't tango. Well, then it'll be such fun teaching you. <laughs> my ex-wife wore a special dress to tango in, and I wore a suit and a hat. <laughs> my ex-wife said I looked very South American. Did she indeed? Uh, I'm afraid I, I have no intention of learning the tango. Oh, dear. Well, that is disappointing. What about the bossa nova? I'm afraid not. N not the bossa nova either. That night we were eating pork chops and mash. Hilda sipped her glass of Pomeroy's Very Ordinary and said, What would you have done... If Leonard hadn't allowed you to cross-examine your own witness... I'd have gone to the Court of Appeal. Leonard's dead scared of the Court of Appeal. Are you planning to continue your bridge sessions with him in the future? Oh, no, I don't think so. Why not? You know he wanted me to divorce you. Well, I knew he'd taken a shine to you, but isn't that going a bit too far? I mean, divorce... It'd be hard to imagine life without you, Hilda. Of course it would. Well, I'm staying with you. I'm not going to see so much of Leonard after what he suggested. Well, what was that? Dancing lessons. What? He actually suggested that we should go to dancing lessons together. The idea's ridiculous. Mad bull dancing. So, I won't be seeing so much of your friend Leonard in future. <laughs> When I went into my room at Chambers that morning, it was full of Timpsons. All the Timpsons who had dismissed me, plus Tiffany's father, Ray. It's very good to see you all. Dennis was once again the spokesman. If I can express the feelings of the meeting, we would like to reappoint you as our official brief, Mr. Lumpur. Yeah, that's right. We're not at all satisfied with the alternatives that have been found for various of our family members. Uh, Would you be prepared to act for us again, Mr. Lumpo, if and when the need arises? At any time of the day or night. So life was back to normal. There would be new closing speeches, further hopefully devastating cross-examinations, more small cigars, and further bottles of Chateau Thames embankment stretching away into a more or less contented future. There was only one cloud in the sky, at present a cloud no bigger than a man's hand, but who could tell what it might grow into? It was the possible future publication of the memoirs of She Who Must Be Obeyed. In part two of Rumpole and the Reign of Terror by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. His wife Hilda was Prunella Scales. Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Antony. Fred Sugden, Kim Durham. And Dr. Mahmoud Khan was Shiv Graval. Will Timpson was Ben Crow. Judge Bullingham, Christopher Benjamin. Bonnie Bernard, Bruce Alexander. Barrington Whiteside, Geoffrey Whitehead. And Peter Plasto, Christopher Scott. Other parts were played by members of the company. 
Rumpole and the Reign of Terror was directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.